Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport watermelon flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance lemon lime flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90-minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Haley. Welcome back home. Welcome back to our as-scheduled Iron Women recording slot for the week. Are you just like coming down off the most epic high ever after competing in the U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials last Saturday? Alyssa, I feel like I'm in like a dream. Like the race experience in Atlanta was was so incredible. And I, I'm so excited to talk about it, and uh, but before we get into all of that, I do want to ask about how your travel has been because you just uh, you're now in New Zealand, right? So I, last time I saw you was in Atlanta. If anyone listened to last week's episode, it was our live event panel in Atlanta ahead of those U.S. Olympic swimming or swimming, oh my God, marathon trials, and now you're and then you flew directly from Atlanta to New Zealand because you're racing this weekend too. It's race week for you. This has to be like one of our most exciting episodes. I'm coming off of a huge race and you're going into a huge race. Yeah, we're going to give people like all the all the race feels for early season stuff, I think. Um I am I made it to New Zealand safe and sound. I actually had quite easy travel. There was like one hiccup where we left a gate there was no power on the plane, so they drove us back. But then they actually fixed the problem, which I feel like never happens on airlines. So, like, we had a slight delay. But I had, other than that, like, very easy travel out here. The jet lag situation has been good. 
Taupo Topo, as the locals call it, is just as lovely as I remember. And it's been it's been good. The body's feeling good. I'm excited to be here. It's always kind of fun. You know, triathlon's funny. It's different than running in that, like, a lot of times, like, if you're going to a running event and you're there for a few days early and you're doing your shakeout stuff, like, it's pretty easy just to, like, keep to yourself and do that stuff. But with triathlon, like, everyone's riding the course. Everyone's going to the pool in the town to swim, you know? So, like, you're starting to run into people and see people and get that, like, pre-race excitement here, which is cool. And it looks like it's going to be a good weekend. It's been a lot less windy, knock on wood, than it was three years ago when I was here. And so that's kind of nice because the conditions can get quite tough here if the if the wind picks up. So I'm just hoping for, like, smooth sailing through to Saturday, and I'm excited excited to race for sure. Well, I think all the wind in New Zealand was in Atlanta last weekend because we actually had some like unusually windy days in Atlanta. But um, I, as we talk about this trial thing, I want to go back a little bit because to our live event, we did our Ironman live event panel last Wednesday. It was released on Thursday as our podcast episode last week. If you missed it, the footage is also the video footage. We had a videographer there. Her name was Sarah Gross. And um, she uh, it is she put that up on the Live Feisty YouTube channel. I think you just go to YouTube, search Live Feisty and you can find it. So if you missed that out, missed that last week, we definitely encourage you to to watch or to listen, because I think it was one of the coolest events we've done. We had myself, um, Ruth Brennan, Maury and Sarah Bishop on the panel and Alyssa moderated. And Alyssa, what, what's, what, do you, what were your takeaways from, from doing that live event? Well, so my takeaways are that doing the live event is definitely different than being with you recording an interview, like as we normally do it, right? Like there's definitely things I think I can, improve upon and kind of prepare better. I will say it's like the perfect storm to have to prepare for that when you're also in the last weeks of a build for a race. So admittedly, I felt a little bit scattered, like trying to get my my thoughts and everything kind of streamlined for that event. But it was it was just so different to have three people, first of all, than just one to interview because the conversation you want to make sure you're giving everyone like time to share things that I knew all these things that I wanted you guys to be talking about and saying, but I needed to be watching the time and making sure that was going to happen. And you also kind of need to gauge the audience and stuff. Like I, I do wish I kind of maybe asked the audience a couple questions more about like who exactly they were in the beginning. And, you know, if they were runners or triathletes and kind of that sort of thing, because I think I could have maybe spoken to them a little bit more if I really had made sure I knew who was there, which I think I knew who was there. And I think that was all good and fine. And then, you know, of course, we're our own worst critics. And so it was fun to see the video footage. But I'm like, man, I could use like a posture posture coach, I could use a little bit more practice standing around in heels. And like, that's what you know, it's, it's great to get that feedback. Because now that we have the podcast, I got myself used to listening every week and, and giving myself, you know, the feedback there. And I think we've improved a ton just from being able to listen and make changes every week and how we're speaking. But then when you add the actual visual element, right? It's a whole nother ball game. And it's more than just making sure I have mascara on and I look presentable, right? It's like the little things about how my hands are matter all of a sudden and how I am standing matter. So for me, you know, that's something I, I definitely would love to continue doing. And it was, I appreciate having you guys like, and the, the listeners that were there and everyone who came be there for, you know, my, my first real try kind of at that, because I, I think I have a lot to improve on, but I, I do think it went well and you guys all did so well. And I think you helped me out a lot because 
when I gave you guys questions, you were exactly on the same wavelength of like what I wanted expressed and like how I hoped the conversation would go. And so it was like, we were all on the same wavelength that night, which was very, very helpful. I love this little like behind the scenes uh, look into what it's like to be an interviewer, because I think I hear back from a lot of our interviewees, especially women who we interview, it might be their first podcast interview or first interview or one of the first ones. And, and they will be like, Oh, I wish I had done this different. And I'm like, everyone feels that way. Everyone feels that way. And the only way you get better is by practicing. And that's every part of it. It's being the interviewer. It's been being the interviewee. You practice it and you get better. And like you said, we listen to ourselves every week and you listen to yourself like with, it's a different kind of critical ear or eye where you're not criticizing yourself for things that can't be changed, but you are like, Hey, well, next time I can do this a little bit better. I could answer that question a little bit better. And we all have that. So it's cool to hear you say that. I did talk to a couple of our audience members or several of our audience members. And we had women coming from like all over the country who came in for the panel and for that event. And it was so fun to meet some of the women who have you know, we, we know online only, and then you get to meet them in real life. Some of those women did stay for the race on Saturday, which was so, so cool. And I, I, Alyssa, like that race experience, if we get into like the actual race Yes. Tell us about it. Let's talk about it. My goodness. I, it was, it was so incredible. I mean, the whole week was amazing. Just everything was so well organized. The Atlanta track club, Shout out to the Atlanta track club for pulling off that race. It, I've never seen anything like it with 700 elite athletes all treated like elites. And I, I heard an interview with Rich Kanaw, who's the, who was the race director and the president of the Atlanta track club. And he talked about how he realized that yes, the top three in the, each race was going to go to the Olympics. And it was a very big deal for, you know, for the 10 favorites, maybe that they were going for that Olympic those Olympic spots. But he also said that he wanted everyone else in the field to have a memory that they would keep for a lifetime. And I can say that that mission was accomplished. Like the race start, I think when I invent and when I envisioned this race, like just months ago, I actually thought I'm like a big deal. A big part of why I wanted to go was because it was in Atlanta, because I have so many friends and family in Atlanta because those streets are special to me. The city is special to me. And it went so far above and beyond that. Like I got to start stand on that start line with 450 of the fastest women in the country. Every single woman on that line had run a sub 245 marathon, which is so fast. I was standing next to Ruth Brennan Mori, who is one of my favorite competitors from triathlon, just an incredible human. And, and we did, we said, this feels like a dream. Like we were standing here and we just, I mean, we were so lucky. It was this beautiful day, perfect running weather, like 50 degrees. Yes, it was windy, but wind is, you know, wind is like your friends and family, like embracing you, right? We have wind in a lot of triathlons. And then the gun goes off and, and we're, jo- we're running down these streets and you kind of, there were a lot of spectators at the start, but you kind of expect that. What I didn't expect was that when we made the turn onto Peachtree, it was deafening, like roaring. And as someone who grew up swimming and, you know, of a sport where you kind of have your head under the water and you don't hear a lot. And as someone who does a lot of Ironman where even the best Ironmans, you think of like Kona, where we have a lot of spectators, it is not like this. I mean, it, I could get emotional just thinking about it right now and just how the streets were just lined. And there were so many people yelling, go Haley 
from all areas of my life. I had my college roommate, Carolyn Joyce. Her family was out there, her parents and her brother and her brother's kids and his wife had made me signs. And, and those people have been cheering for me for decades, you know, since I was a really good swimmer, you know, since I was swimming at the University of Georgia and one of my other um, Georgia teammates, she was out there with her dad and seeing them was just, it was so cool. Of course I had my Dynamo multi-sport family, um, who, who came out and cheered and, um, Betty Janelle who got me, you know, started in, in sport and endurance sport and triathlon. And she's, you know, going through cancer treatment right now and hasn't left the house in about five months. And she came out and cheered. And so it was, it was just so, so special. I mean, my coach, Matthew, he was out there and one of my old bosses from when I was a accountant at, um, Bennett Thrasher, he, I saw him. I mean, and there were a lot of people who I didn't see just because the crowds were like so, so big, but I heard them. And, and so it was, it was just crazy. Like, I hope everyone sometime in their life could have an experience like that because it was like, oh my goodness, like I've been doing sport for so long and I'm so lucky to be here in this position and have like all these people around me. So it was, I mean, Sarah Gross was out there and Catherine Taylor from the, and a lot of the women who were on the Iron Woman Live um, event and they were all out there. And then a lot of the volunteers at different aid stations were actually people that I knew, you know, from Smash Fest Queen team, from just triathletes who were out there volunteering and oh, the volunteers were so incredible. And, um, I don't know. It was, and also just the race format, having it be these multiple out and backs was so cool because even though I was closer to the back of the pack, I got to see those women in the front. Like you got to see them coming back. And I was very, I felt like rather invested into their race. And I got to, you know, see the moves that were being made. And that was really cool as well, because yes, I was not going for an Olympic spot. There was under no circumstances that I think I would be going for an Olympic spot unless there was like something that went terribly wrong. But I did feel really, it felt really cool to be, to be running on the same course as them, to be experiencing the same conditions as, as them. And then also to be not too far behind them, you know, and that was something neat about having that 245 cutoff. It's not, even if we're further back, we're not so far back. And also just everyone is pretty fast. Like, you know, we have a lot of other races where, yeah, most people are fast and there are qualification times, but they might be age graded or they might have some charity slots or sponsor slots. This race had none of that. Everyone had qualified and to have 450 women who had qualified, I can't say it enough because it was so historical to be part of that. It's just, it gives me so much hope for what we're doing as the Iron Women podcast, for what we're doing for women's sport and for why, you know, we get on the phone every single week and try to interview and share some of these stories because you can think that there, there may not be that many, but there are, and people will rise to the occasion if you give them the opportunity. I think that the inspiration people have drawn from this event alone is like planting so many seeds in just so many people's heads to like go for things and dream big and be part of events like this. Because like you said, like, I mean, this was special for those, you know, 10, 20 people who really thought they had a a shot at those three slots to make the Olympic team. But it was very special still for you can just see it, like reading the stories, seeing it in like from the panel that we did, like this was special to Sarah Bishop to be like the mom who has four kids and who makes it happen even when her husband's gone and she has to get in her training and like to prove to, you know, show her children, like, this is me, this is who I am. 
And I saw like one of her Instagram posts that like her kids were like got there and they were like, oh, there's other moms here running too, you know? And so like, I mean, just things like that, I think are so good that have come out of that whole, like really, I mean, it feels like a month of buildup and stories leading into that. But then also just like that, having that trickle through social media and the news. I mean, we're getting like New York times coverage on this stuff, like with Ruth and, you know, like that kind of stuff is just so amazing. And to see where we are, I mean, you and I can remember that when we were just getting into the sport, like think about 2009, like that wasn't happening a decade ago, you know? And so like, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's been like a great month. I think watching you with getting ready to go run there and then being able to spend a day in Atlanta, like a couple hours with you and before your race and like watching on TV and seeing like my social media feeds, everyone's posting the Haley pictures as I'm watching the coverage and things like that. And like, it's just so much positive stuff. And maybe it's the bubble that I'm surrounding myself in, but like, I'm not seeing a lot of bad, like negative things come out. I mean, what negatives can you find in something like this? Right. So I think a lot of that, though, to your point, like does come from the Atlanta Track Club and the the standards that they set for themselves and they wanted to meet for the athletes and just kind of the respect that they gave you guys all as athletes. It's huge. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like to travel across the world to New Zealand here because they do. They treat pro athletes that for Ironman here differently. They send an email out that you don't get when you go to other Ironmans about like you're invited to all of these things as VIPs, like let us know that you're coming. We want you there. You're important. You're valued, you know, and it still isn't quite Atlanta, you know, us Olympic marathon trials, but it does, it makes a difference and it helps you as you're sharing your story and getting like other people involved to help you because it is, it takes a village, right? It always takes a village. But on that note, I, I have to ask a like logistical question. I do want to hear about the hydration situation because we spent some time talking about this on the panel, your bottles of alcohol, and people will have to listen to that week to know exactly what that joke means. But how did that go? Like, was that wild? Because the coverage I saw actually didn't, I had to watch on the Olympic channel being international. And so, you know, cutting between the races, they weren't very interested in necessarily showing you guys getting your hydration a lot. But how did that go? Like, was, did you find your bottle where was the plan? Like, did it work? Oh, it was flawless, Alyssa. Like there, there were something like 600 bottles out there, personal bottles. We, we, before the race, we submitted six bottles and I decorated mine and I put a picture of those on the Instagram and I, I tried to use like neon duct tape and designs that kind of matched my green and yellow and pink kit. And just because I do, I am partial to those colors. So they had them, I think there were something like 50 tables laid up. So it's like several blocks long. And then the men's bottles had like blue tablecloths. The women's had red and they were numbered and they had these big numbers and I was table number 23. I was able to see the number. My table had 12 bottles per table, but it was designed so that the first six in the front, so there's two rows, but the first six in the front should be gone before the next six people come. And, and it was, it was, so I was in the second row, I was position seven. So I was in the second row, but there was never a point when I, I struggled to grab it or see it. It was very, very well done. And there were volunteers there at the same time. And then if you did, for some reason, miss a bottle, the right past that, there was like a neutral water station and they had Powerade, I believe as well, and some gels. So I was never wanting for water or for my fluids and it was seamless. And the race course, like maybe the first, the first couple of miles were fairly like 
crowded, but that's how every race is. And then it got pretty strung out. And, and I do realize it's funny for me to say, like, I think I finished 304th. I ran a 254, which uh, is neither a best time, nor was it my really well-paced races that I had at California International Marathon. And so I, I struggled personally with, especially on the third loop. And, but what was so cool is that like, it was like, it's just, it is a good lesson where, where no one, no one really, I mean, people noticed, but no one like held that against me. And even though my friends and family were watching me struggle and I didn't have like necessarily my best race performance ever, I still would consider that one of my, my best race experiences. And I think that that teaches me something just because I, I was struggling up these hills in the end and we had these headwinds and but then I would look up and, and I wasn't alone. There were other women who were struggling too. And, and I had people still cheering for me on the sidelines and they knew, they knew the course was hard. The conditions were hard, that we were struggling, that we've run, you know, 10, 12 minutes faster before in our lives. And that this is sport and that you have hard days. And, and I looked up and I, we, at the end, you run through underneath the Olympic rings from the 96 Olympics and they actually lit the Olympic cauldron and it was the first time they'd lit it since 1996. And I did. I spent a time. I'm going, you're going uphill. You have this like terrible headwind. I felt terrible. But I did look up and I looked at that Olympic cauldron and it lit. And it was just like, I was like, enjoy this moment. Like, enjoy this. And, and I think I did a good job of that. And I think the other women around me did as well. And, and so I think there's a lesson in that as well that our best race experiences aren't always our best race performances. And yes, we, we train hard and we work really hard to have our best performances on a specific day. But if things aren't coming together, there's still a lot of good and a lot of learning. And hey, I am also going to give myself a little pat on the back for having my off day be a 254 because that is still really damn fast. <laughs> so, um, so I'm really proud of myself for that as well. And, and then coming down that finish line, I mean, the roar was like insane. And then you get to like meet up with some your like friends and family. And that was really cool. And I actually met, um, give a shout out to Bianca, who was like, I think finished sometime around me. Um, and she came up to me afterwards and said, she's a fan of the podcast. So Alyssa, we have runner friend, we have runner listeners as well, which is awesome. We love it. So thank you, Bianca, for listening. And, and everyone else who um, who actually came up to me and said that they listen, they're a fan of the podcast. I really appreciated it, even though I was like an emotional wreck after that race, as you can imagine, because I'm barely like keeping it together, talking about it like three days later. So um, I appreciate everyone who, who talked to me about it. And I'll be emotional about that race probably for the rest of my life, because like like Rich Kunas said, I mean, it was it's a memory I will cherish for a lifetime. So thank you, Atlanta Track Club. Thank you for everyone who who cheered and helped put that on. And thank you to everyone who watched at home. And thank you to you, Alyssa, for coming out and making it really, really special, having that panel before and, and for finding a way to watch it, even in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just like could hear you talk about it all day. It just makes me so excited. And I think I'm going to think about uh, if it does get windy here this weekend, think about the wind is just my friends and family just extending their hugs to me. I love the way you put that. <laughs> I will be like, oh, I, get- I, would, I would prefer a gentler hug <laughs> or like some actual <laughs> contact maybe. But, you know, I'm just, I like laugh because now I'm thinking of like my friends and family across the globe, like blowing wind into yes. like... <laughs> I'm stealing that one. I'm actually seeing that one from Betty Janelle, who like, I think she and her husband got married in Hawaii one year. And I think it was really windy and the wedding day. And I believe that was like part of their wedding ceremony. They're like, this is just the friends and family who can't be here cheering for you. So I do always think about that. And, and I had like friends and family, like cheering right there in the wind (laughs) as well. So it, but it, I mean, 
I, I don't know. Wind hits everyone, right? And so, and I think you're better prepared to handle that as well. But I am excited to follow you this weekend to return the favor and follow you at Ironman New Zealand. That's going to be another great event. And I'm also very, very interested to hear how supportive they are of the, all the pros in New Zealand. That makes me definitely put that race on my radar for future years because being wanted at a race, and, and I feel like it's terrible that we have to say that, that that's unusual, but it is a little bit unusual and it does make a difference. Totally, totally. And in an effort not to make this the world's longest Iron Woman episode ever, I'll keep things moving on. We have a mailbag question coming in for, and this one's for you, Haley. So, you know, we want you to weigh in on this. So this came in to us from Instagram and they want to ask you, so many former swimmers struggle with that transition to running. So we have the engine, but many times, whether it be our stability over flexible ankles or form with our man lats, I love that, hunching over, find it a challenge to find our stride when they're running, right? So what are some best practices for your fellow retired swim sisters looking to follow in your footsteps? First of all, I think we should call those woman lats. I love my big lats. I love my broad shoulders from swimming. I'm so thankful for all my swimming um, physiology, but... Uh, I do love this question, and I think that most former swimmers do have like a really big aerobic engine. So it means that they probably have really good endurance. But however, that endurance can probably get a swimmer in trouble if she tries to do too much running too soon. So the problem is that she'll be only be able to handle the duration of a long run just fine. But that increased impact from the quote unquote dry land part of running is really hard on a body that's used to being horizontal in a nearly zero zero impact, low gravity environment like a pool. So my suggestion is patience. The best thing I did 12 years ago was hire a coach. And I'm really lucky that my coach, Matthew Rose of Dynamo Multisport in Atlanta, had personal experience as a swimmer turned runner. And he knew the risks of coaching an athlete like me. There have been so many times during the past 12 years, and especially in those first early years, when I honestly thought my run workouts were too easy. And But I think by doing those easy runs year after year after year, it gave me this foundation to gradually get faster without getting injured. Because outside of getting hit by a car in 2015, I've had zero major injuries and no running related injuries in 12 years. So these days, I, I wouldn't consider my run workouts at all easy. They crush me. They're very hard. But that's because I have gradually worked up to running the paces and durations that I do now. And my body is better prepared to hold, handle that impact. I also do believe that swim and bike fitness and especially bike fitness really do translate to run fitness. So triathlon really could be the perfect way for a swimmer to transition to being a runner, to add in that lower impact activity like cycling that is a little bit more run specific than swimming. So I would give this listener my best advice is to be patient with your progress and think in terms of years, not weeks or days. And it might not take you 12 years, but just be patient and know that that aerobic fitness is going to pay off as soon as you, you know, if you're, if you're patient and consistent and just celebrate little milestones along the way. I love it. That was great advice. <clears throat> Being able to look at the bigger picture and be patient is key advice probably for a lot of things in life, huh? But and we'll move on. We have a really fun interview coming up with Melindy Elmore. Haley, can you tell us more about that? 
That's right. We are we are riding the coattails of the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials hype this week and bringing you one more story of a professional triathlete slash marathoner as we share a conversation with a Canadian Olympian who also boasts an 857 Ironman PR, Melindy Elmore. So Melindy just set a new Canadian marathon record when she ran a 2.24.50 to finish third in January's Houston Marathon. The Canadian Olympic selection process is a little different from the U.S. selection process. And during this interview, Melindy does share some insight into what goes on, what goes into making the Canadian Olympic marathon team. If she does make the team, which will be announced in May, this would make Melindy a two-time Olympian since she raced the 1,500 meters on the track in the Athens Olympics in 2004. In the 16 years since Athens, in addition to becoming a very fast marathoner, Melindy has also become a clean sport advocate, passionately speaking out against doping. She's also had two children, and as mentioned earlier, she even spent a few years racing as a professional triathlete, running her way on a several 70.3 podiums and a very impressive third place and sub-nine-hour finish at her debut Ironman at Ironman Arizona in 2016. We'll have our conversation with the multi-talented Melindy Elmore right after the break. triathlon is certainly hard on your skin without a doubt that was teresa helsel dermatologist pa and accomplished triathlete earlier this year teresa came on the podcast to offer skincare advice specific to triathletes teresa's two biggest tips were to avoid sunburn and chafing and luckily iron women podcast listeners get 15 percent off all zelio skincare products including sun barrier spf 45 zinc-based sunscreen and betwixt athletic skin lubricant and chamois cream Use the code IRONWOMEN at TeamZelios.com for 15% off and use Zelios products to protect your skin during all your swim, bike, run fun. Hi, Melinda. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi. Good to meet you. Good to be here. So I didn't even know exactly like where to begin when I was researching all of your career accolades, because you have the kind of career that I think they make like ESPN 30 for thirties out of, because it has literally everything. So we're going to go through a lot of the early stuff, even to brush our listeners up on some of that. And in that, like I read that you said that when you were a 12 year old child, you decided that running would be the sport that would take you to the Olympics. So I think there's a lot of people out there who are kids who dreamt of the Olympics or maybe even some kids listening who have dreams of the Olympics, but clearly you took this dream very seriously. So what do you think that you were doing in like those really early, even childhood years that set you apart? Well, actually my very first Olympic aspiration was in 1984 for the first women's marathon in LA and watching Joan win the Olympics. And I was only four but it left an impression. And, and of course, now that I have a five-year-old, we watched the Olympics, the winter Olympics last year, 2018, when he was three and a half and he was totally engrossed by watching the competition. And he said, he said ever since the last two years, I want to be a snowboard half piper when I grow up. I don't think I'm hoping he doesn't actually do that because I'd be too worried about his head, (laughs) his brain, but I can now understand how like a that like those kind of impressions can really strike you early and, and kind of leave a lasting impression on you. So, I mean, I obviously wasn't like five and six walking around going, I want to make it to the Olympics one day, but it kind of all, it percolated for a long time, I guess. And from four to something around 18, you obviously worked very hard and you continued to have a successful running career 
at Stanford University. You set school records in the 800 meters and 1500 meters. In 2004, you were selected to the Canadian Olympic team, which there you did it. You know, your dream came true. Only only took you 20 years. And so, and then in in 2008, you narrowly missed the qualification standard for the Beijing Olympics. And this is often highlighted in your career because two weeks before the Beijing Olympics, nine middle distance women were suspended for doping violations. And that 1500 meter field went from having three rounds of heats to two and the number, because the number of entrants just went down so much. So I, I'm curious to hear about your, your take on that and you know, how you felt being the fastest runner to quote unquote, not make the Olympics that mm-hmm. were so clouded by this doping scandal. Well, you know what, it's a, it's actually a really complex issue and answer to that question. So obviously like, and the first thing is huge chart break disappointment for sure. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it took me a long time to get over that, but it was actually even like I said, a bit more complex than that, because at the time in Canada, our national federation was imposing stricter criteria on Canadians to make Olympic teams than the rest of the country. So we were not going on world athletics or IWF criteria. So I actually was completely qualified for the Olympics. I should have gone. My times would have selected me to other teams, but our federation said, no, we want everyone who makes it to demonstrate they're going to win. A po- they're going to be a podium performer. And so didn't nominate probably, there were probably six or seven of us who weren't even nominated to make the Olympic team who could have, would have, should have. So then when the field size was decimated and my coach went back to the Federation to Athletics Canada and said, you know, can we add myself? And there was another, um, my kind of teammate competitor, Hillary Stellingworth, they said, oh yeah, we'll try. And, but they hadn't even actually put our names forward at that point. So it was too late in the process to be added. Where in the United States, for example, if someone ste- if someone can't compete at the games, they're, the USATF nominated everyone who was qualified to be on the team. Like you can nominate, you can put forward 12 names or whatever and select three of those people. We weren't even in the pool to be selected by our federation at that point. So anyways, I know that sounds really complex and it's probably more complicated than I need to explain, but it was, it was like a double whammy because our federation had not allowed us the opportunity to be there. And then the field sizes were decimated and we couldn't even step in at that point. That's super fascinating because I have a, I might come from a swimming background and I, there was a time when I had one of my best friends made the Olympic swim team after the trials because one of the a different swimmer tested positive. So that is a fascinating thing where the nominations have to work ahead of time. And sometimes it does pay off to just nominate a whole bunch of people just in case something happened. Yeah. And you can kind of backfill right to the games, which if they had done that, if they'd done the paperwork, they could have sort of subbed us in basically at that point, but they hadn't done all the paperwork. And the fact that they made were making us for between about 2000, I'm not sure when it started, but there was a period of time about 10 years that Athletics Canada was, like I said, they had these elevated, they call, we called them A plus standards. They were above the world standards and we had to run these faster performances to make it now Canada is following the normal route IAAF standards and we're performing so much better as a country and it's amazing because like every every week someone is setting a new Canadian record and so it's kind of elevated it's a whole other issue but you just realize like how that actually has motivated people and given people a better better competitive avenue for for making teams there people are running faster when the standards are a bit more not, they're not soft. They're still really hard, but they're equitable. 
Did that change come from the, like, do you know about the background where their athletes pushing for that change through oh, the yeah. year or, okay. So was that yes. like the catalyst and then the I'm federation not, was kind of like, mm, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure what the entire catalyst was. I think a bit of a leadership change. And I mean, part of this came from the whole Canadian philosophy of own the podium. And it, it like, there were a lot of years where Canada wasn't competitive globally across the board in Sports. And so like a lot of government funding was really dependent on us actually winning medals at Olympic Games. And it worked really well in a lot of sports. We got a huge injection of publicly funded sports. Vancouver 2010 was a huge, huge, huge opportunity for Canada to showcase their athletes um, at a home Olympics in Vancouver. And it was the most successful Olympics ever. And that generated more funding for other sports. So I think it was like not just Athletics Canada. I think it was coming from like a Sport Canada perspective of we need to actually step up and have performances globally and how to the NSOs, the national sport organizations, actually create the environments to create uh, medal medalists at these Olympic Games. So Canada, because Canada hosted, I think it was the Montreal Olympics, 1976 or no, no, it may have been the Calgary 1988. Anyways, we were we were won no Olympics in our in the host country. No, uh, no, sorry, no medals as a host country. And it was embarrassing. <laughs> wow. It is so fa- fascinating how counterintuitive it is that a slower, more conservative, maybe that's a better term, qualification standard increases performance. And I think that's something I definitely saw that in swimming when they did that with the U.S. Olympic trials for swimming. They made the times a little bit easier, I think, in like 2012. And our swimming, swimmers, the top times got faster. And it's so, so counterintuitive. But it the, this sounds like it's another like another example of that happening. Does that, is that kind of what has made you remain optimistic about the sport and competing? Because obviously you are still competing and it seems like it would have been really hard after that disappointment in 2008. Well, yeah, it, well, 2008 and then I didn't make it in 2012 for sort of different reasons. And so basically that's what led me to triathlon was I just needed to take a step away from the sport and got really frustrated and got really frustrated by like the politics of those complex issues of doping, um, the fact that our standards were based on elevated times produced by dopers, uh, you know, our national sport org not supporting athletes who are the top in the country to go to Olympics, all those kind of political setbacks just kind of made me lose my love of what I was doing for a little period of time. I thought, I'm just going to switch sports and do something on my own terms and, and, and have fun with it again. And that's why I started sport in the, in the first place, right, is to enjoy being active, competing, and not feel like super frustrated by the political aspect of it. And so in 2012, you did win the national championships. And as you said, you um, didn't make the Olympic team that year. So it was at that point, like things kind of started to move. So we want to talk to you a little bit more about that transition into triathlon. And did you know at that point, like you wanted to compete professionally as triathlon? Did you just decide like you just wanted to get away from the track and this was going to still be an athletic outlet for you? Like, how yeah. how did that go? <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, my husband was doing had already kind of transitioned into doing triathlon at that point. He had he was a competitive runner as well, but he had retired long before me. And so I was going to triathlons and cheering them on and just kind of enjoyed it and thought, oh, this would be cool to try one day. I'm I'm no swimmer, especially when we talk to someone like Haley. <laughs> but um 
but you know, that was also a challenge. Like, how can I become a better athlete by trying something that I'm not very good at? But honestly, I didn't really have aspirations to become a pro triathlete off the starting block. I just wanted to do it. And then mostly I really wanted to have a uh, sort of family, have a baby. And then kind of after he was a year old, then started, well, then I actually did my first triathlon when he was a year old and it went well. And I thought, oh, I might as well just get my pro card because I would like to, I like to kind of race the best people I can race against for the level that I'm at. And, um, obviously the, this, that was a very good move to get that pro card. And I do have the distinction of being passed by you in a race on the run. It's a distinction that I actually, there's quite a few people who have that distinction or are not who, who have been passed by you and who have passed me, who have been on both sides of that, but you had a really good triathlon career. Even your debut Ironman time of eight hours, 57 minutes and 22 seconds. You did that in Arizona in 2016. And it's, still the fourth fastest time ever by a Canadian woman. So you'd spent all this time training for 800 to 1500 meter races on a track, you know, controlled, mostly controlled environment, two to four minutes at a time, clearly much different than even a eight hour and 57 minute Ironman. How did you find the training and racing adjustment? Yeah. I mean, it was a huge, huge change in training. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it, but that really set the stage for being able to take on the marathon training. And it, I think it was fun. Like it's, it's kind of fun to reinvent and to, to, to reinvigorate through new challenges. So, but absolutely the training that I received coming out of being a track and field athlete was like a, a 360 or I guess 360 brings you right back around again, a 180. <laughs> um, and you know, things like I could not swim more than 15 or 1600 meters at a time when I, or, you know, in a broken, not even at a time, like broken up when I first started swimming, I didn't know, I did not know how to swim. So getting to the point where I could do four or five K swim sets in preparation for Ironman Arizona, you know, two or three years after I took up swimming was that like, was a huge accomplishment personally and something I had to work really hard at. And I felt I never felt like my swimming completely clicked in races. I always felt a bit overwhelmed by open water swimming in a dynamic environment when you talk about the control track and then then doing something that you're not like that's your not your natural sport. And you know, the six hour bike rides, all of that was so, so foreign. But I just really embraced the process and thought it was really fun to do these things that I didn't think I could do as a track athlete. And Melinda, you've said that one of the things that helps you her helped you to race hard in triathlon was to be quote in the moment. So mm -hmm. I imagine that, especially for a mother, this is actually like a pretty hard thing to do because your mind is probably like on a million other things. A lot of the other time, like when you need to be racing, but like, is this being sorted and is this taken care of and, 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 and right. So how did you develop? Like that would be a skill, right? So are there ways that you really have helped to like hone in on that skill and develop that? Well, I think racing is different than training at racing. I'm pretty good about focusing uh, in the moment and really, you know, staying engaged with what I'm doing. And I think that just comes from 25 years of, of doing it. And also just having like being a competitively oriented person that when it's a race, that's all that matters to me in that, you know, in that context, training is harder for sure. Like sometimes going out to training sessions and when there's the to-do list is a mile long and my, I feel torn between what I should be doing like on the home front or work front with training, there can be a conflict, which I'm sure everyone feels that pull, but I always feel like I get halfway through training session. And then suddenly like I just get the natural release of 
well, I'm sure, I mean, people who talk physiology and hormonal systems can tell you all the, all the technical terms, but I just feel like I can finally relax and, and focus on what I'm doing. But sometimes it's a battle to get to that point. Right. And, and then you realize like at the end of a session, how you are better off for having done it. And, and that actually how much it helps you be calmer at home and at work as well. This is kind of a self-serving question, but going back to racing Ironman and and triathlon and not being a swimmer, I'm very curious about the mindset you have when you come out of the water or when you're on the run, because obviously our, our, our race tech tactics are quite different. (laughs) And I'm always impressed by people who can come out of the water and hear, you know, a number that's pretty big that they're down by. And yet I still end up on the run getting splits being like this Canadian woman looks way better than you and she's coming fast, you know? So like, I mean, what is your mindset when you come out of the water? Like, do you just know, do you just know your run will be there and that I'm going to come back to you or someone like me? It hasn't have to be me. (laughs) You know what? I have had some really, really dark moments in the swim. I'll be really honest. Like there's been some moments when I'm out there and I look around, especially when you race with the pro field and it's a small field, you're not in the you're not with the people surrounding you. Even if you're having a bad race, there's at least people with you if you're in the age group race, right? I'm like, sometimes I can't see anybody. And I think I'm the only person in the water and I'm not always very good at sighting. And I'll look up and I'll see that I'm a hundred meters. It feels like a mile off course. And I can be pretty hard on myself in those moments of why am I so bad at this? So for me, the water is the hardest thing of staying calm and and just trying to really not, this is what uh, Matt Dixonism, who is my coach, Purple Patch Fitness, while I was a triathlete, is like, he'd always say, don't judge. Don't judge in the moment, in the moment and just stop being so hard on yourself. Like, reserve judgment until the race is over because sometimes I'd be swimming like, oh, I should be swimming more. I need to do more. But, I mean, I think part of it is like when you've only done it two or three years, there's like running. Like, you need a history of, a background in sport to be good at it. So yeah, my mindset in the water and coming out of the water is not always as positive as it should be. Cause sometimes I am really overwhelmed by how far back I am or how poor my swim was based on what I, how I'm judging it. And they come out and it's like, okay, just get on the bike. I'm on ground now. Like go, just go as hard as you can. And pretty much my race strategy. Once I get out of the water is just to go as hard as I can on the bike and as hard as I can on the run in the water. My strategy is to try and stay relaxed and not not in a way try and go as hard as I can because as soon as I start trying to go as hard as I can, I automatically get tense and actually swim slower. So yeah, it's I'm sure it's different for both of us. And that's kind of the cool thing about triathlon is there's kind of equalizers between the three disciplines and we all have really different ways of executing a race based on our, our natural strengths and weaknesses. And Melindy, after your second child was born, you had another career transition in sport, and this time you went to marathoning. So was it during Ironman training that you fell in love with that, like, marathon distance, and you were like, you know, I think maybe I want to pursue this at the next level? Yeah, I just say again, it was fairly organic. I didn't really have a plan during either transitions that, oh, now I'm done this, I'm going to move on to this next goal. They've been, they've certainly been, yeah, like I say, more more of an organic, like, Oh, I want to try this new sport and see, and just do the training and see what I can do. And then I find, get myself into it and like, Oh, okay, well it's going pretty well. I should, you know, if I train well and I compete well, then what are my results going to, going to bring? So I didn't actually, I actually had planned to just stop competing competitively after my second, because I thought the time away from training and competing was 
is definitely puts a strain on the family at times and that I would just kind of settle into, you know, being mom to two kids and go camping during the summer and not have to plan our family vacations around when I'm racing or training. Um, but I, I just started running again for fun and for fitness after he was born and then thought, oh, I'll just try a marathon and then kind of got into it and just, again, really enjoyed the process of becoming a better runner again and doing the mileage that I had never done as a, either as a triathlete or as a track runner that I'd done touchdown marathon training and just felt kind of, again, like refreshed and reinvigorated by the new challenge and the new goals. And you, you were a fast runner off the bike. You, your fastest Ironman marathon is a 257, which is very, very impressive. We celebrate anytime anyone goes under three hours in an Ironman, right? Because it's, it's hard and it's really fast, but, but your 224.50 that you recently ran at the Houston marathon is just next level. I mean, you don't have to be a math major to like understand the difference in, you know, I, I guess minutes per kilometer for you and the difference between those two paces. So how did you wrap your head around going from, you know, training to race for a 257 sub three hours off the bike to a 224.50? Well, I think for me, because I come from a running background, I didn't really ever get the chance to train for running while I was a triathlete because, again, I was new. I picked up swimming at 32 or 33, and I picked up cycling. Then, I mean, I'd ridden a bike and I'd swim in a pool, but I didn't ever train for them. So my entire focus for, the, for those three years that I was doing triathlon was swim bike. And, you know, Matt was like, we got to let the running go because you're already a good runner and you don't need to to not waste time, but you know what I mean? Like not your focus needs to be on improving your weaknesses, not your strengths. So we did very little running training, which is partly why I went back to the marathon. Cause I love to run. And every time I was given the chance to do any kind of running, I was like, Oh, this is what I love to do. And it was such a small percentage of the overall training. So I really feel like I wasn't training for the marathon part of the Ironman. We were just getting through the bike and the run, no, sorry, getting through the swim and the bike and then seeing what was left to run. And it, honestly, the run I find off the bike in an Ironman for the marathon is so much harder than just a fresh marathon because just it's hard to it's hard to prepare for something when you're already six hours into, you know, energy depletion, dehydration, hip flexors, cramping. Like that's not how you would prefare for a straight up marathon. You actually go to the marathon having eaten well and you know, you're hydrated and your hip flexors feel okay. And you don't, you're not like already sweating buckets and you're, you know, so they're very, very, very different approaches to the two events, even though they're the same distance. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the marathon versus Ironman marathon. And so you and Haley are definitely on the team of the Ironman marathon being harder. I think I'm, I'm still a little undecided, but I have a lot of bad memories from how hard that open marathon <laughs> was when I did that. So oh, I boy. Know. I feel like if you're prepared well for a marathon, the first half of it is just like a give me, you know, and then it, then it maybe becomes tough, but you're already halfway through instead of the Ironman. You like the first step off the bike is like, oh, my God, what am I doing to myself? <laughs> I agree. Like, I think my Ironman... I've never had to pace myself in the first mile off the bike in an Ironman no. because it's more like, oh my gosh, how do I keep myself moving? I feel terrible. Uh, I know. I think when the Texas, uh, when I did Ironman Texas, where I went 257 somehow, 
uh, the first eight miles, I think I was like doubled over because my stomach hurt so bad. I couldn't even like stand up properly. And I just kept looking at my husband going, when's he going to just tell me it's okay to just stop? <laughs> you know, and, um, Yeah, you, you, you don't have that feeling off the line in a marathon. <laughs> And Melinda, I did want to ask you about Houston specifically. So in this race, um, and I apologize, I, I wasn't able to figure out the exact pronunciation of her name, but Askeli Marachi, I think maybe, of Ethiopia, was out in front by herself. And so I was listening to some of the post-race kind of gossip, if you will, and I heard it could have been a situation where the other women, like maybe yourself included in that front group, didn't realize that she had kind of gotten away so fast at the start and was actually running with men in a group like ahead. Right. So was that the situation? Were you guys aware of her leading the race? You know, were you even in a situation where you cared about that <laughs> while you were running in Houston? Well, you know, it's funny because we had planned my, my husband and I, we had talked or bounced around the idea for a while, like whether I try to run with somebody at my pace, like basically coordinate to run around 225, run 212 and a half uh, through the half, because there were going to be rabbits for the leader, but they were going to go out on 222 to 223 marathon pace. And I thought that'd be a little bit rich. And generally speaking, if the Ethiopians and Kenyans, if they ask for a pace that's fast, they all go on that pace. They don't really like if that's what the leader wants, that's what they all commit to instead of, oh, well, I'm not quite there yet. I'm going to settle back. So it sort of becomes a bit of a race of attrition at the front. So I, I knew that there would be people who would go with that pace and drop off. So when they said at the technical meeting the night before that they were putting a rabbit out for 222, 223 pace, I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do my own thing. And then I started the race and I got about four or five K in and I looked around and realized uh, I was with the lead group and you're right. There was a woman off the front, but it was with the lead pack with the two pacers designated to lead the women's lead pack. And I was like, well, this is great. This is perfect for me. I'll, I'll just settle into this. And I ended up almost leading that lead pack with the male pacers, but kind of being at the front of it. But I did know that there was somebody off the front because, um, I think my husband was on course and he gave some feedback and said that there's someone two minutes up the road. But then the rest of the time, I'm like, this is so awesome. I'm in the lead pack. I've got the pacers. I'm in the race. And I had thought about going a little bit faster at one point. I thought, no, this is the race I need to be in. Like, at the end of the day, even though you want to run fast, it's a race, right? And, and I think sometimes people get so wrapped up in running with their time, and they forget that you actually, the objective is also to place as high as you can, which I do like about triathlon because there's way less emphasis on, on your overall time. It's more on how did you place. And I think that's like at the core of racing is is placing as high as you can and beating as many people as you can and seeing how well you can do in the field. So yeah, no, I knew she was ahead. And then I was starting to get a little bit of feedback that she, cause she went out really fast and then she was a lot slower in the second half. We were, we were more even because she only ended up being a minute ahead by the end, but she was two or three minutes ahead of us at the halfway. So again, like that race strategy, and then the group that I was in, there were eight of us at one point, And then by four or five K to go, there were three of us left. Well, I ended up second of that group and third overall. And then, like I said, there were two of the women that had been in our pack for 35K. They DNF'd, and one of them lost five minutes in the last 5K. So the, the, the group does blow up in the end if you're patient. Wow, that is, that's super fascinating, I, I guess, just from a perspective of having done one marathon recently and not anywhere near the front pack. But this, I just, I love hearing about it. And it does get me excited to watch, watch the Tokyo Olympics coming up. But I, I'm really curious about your opinion on the quote unquote shoe debate. 
Um, I, I know that leading into Houston, there were some rumblings, some like unattributed articles coming out saying they might ban the, uh, the Nike Vaporfly next percent and 4% shoes. I think your husband actually had tweeted something about like, I hope it doesn't tell this next week or something. <laughs> and ultimately that didn't happen. So I'm assuming you ran in the, in the Vaporflies. And I just want to hear your, your kind of your take on this because you've been in running for so long. Like, what do you think about the shoes? So yeah, first thing. So my husband, who I keep talking about, his name is Graham. I'll just refer to him as Graham now. Yeah, he he was a little bit panicked the few days leading into Houston. He's like, we gotta have a backup plan if they ban these shoes. And I thankfully have never been really a gear person. Like he always told me what to ride in triathlon. He told me what I needed for a setup for bike and wheels and tire and PSI and everything. He just get my bike set up. Thank goodness. Cause I'm not really technical that way. And same with the shoes. He just handed them to me last year. He ordered them. He's like, you need to wear these shoes. This is what everyone's wearing now. You have to wear these shoes. And I was again, not being someone who cares that much. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, whatever you make. But as soon as I put them on last year, cause I ran in them in Houston last year too. It's like, Oh, these are amazing. Like you can absolutely hundred percent feel the difference in the shoes with the first step you take. So they are unlike anything else. It has become very controversial and it, it's a little bit, you know, the media is really gleamed, gleamed onto it. And sometimes it feels a little bit like that's the storyline that's, that's overriding performance, especially when you think of things in the context of placing absolutely the times are being impacted by the shoes. I, I'm not even going to deny it. Some people may, but there is a, there is a relatively significant factor of performance in the shoes. So we're going to need a new reference point now because times that were being run a few years ago are a minute or two faster over the marathon with the shoes. My biggest beef, I suppose, at this moment, but I am glad with the new world athletics rules that have been imposed recently with stack height and number, number of carbon plates that go into a shoe. So it's 40 millimeters and one carbon plate are allowed. It's just getting more parity within the market so that everyone doesn't feel like they have to wear Nike or they're giving up time. It'll be really nice. And I think that there's a lot of technology and a lot of innovation going on. Uh, I guess I don't even suppose it's innovation, but a lot of, of reaction by the other shoe companies to come up with competitive shoes so that... New Balance, Saucony, Hoka, uh, Asics, et cetera, et cetera, can all provide the market um, a comparable shoe to the Nike Vaporfly or the Next Percent. So that we're not just, you know, having a monopoly situation where everyone feels like they have to wear Nike or else they are effectively giving up time. What about the sponsorship perspective? Have you passed up like shoe sponsors so that you can wear the Nike shoes? Well, this is this is part of one of the reasons why I think there needs to be parity in the market because for uh, for two reasons. One is that there's people under contract with other shoe companies who are not possibly on possibly at the moment not on an equal playing field to people who are sponsored by Nike. And I hate to think that somebody won't make an Olympic team in the United States because they've already signed a contract a few years ago with a company and they don't have a shoe of the same level yet. That's completely unfair. And then on, yeah, on the flip side, if I'm going to consider wearing a shoe that's not a Nike shoe, then it needs to be a really, 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 really competitive shoe and really close to Nike in order to be worth worth it. So, I mean, at this point, Nike has has people who are giving up contracts in order to pay for their shoes to wear because they don't want to give up one or two minutes or three minutes or whatever it's going to be and therefore not make an Olympic team because they're in, quote unquote, the wrong shoes. So yeah, it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough one that didn't used to have to impact running decisions very much. It's certainly in triathlon, you have to consider what bike you're riding, what 
gear you're using, so many more of these gear questions and equipment questions come into question in something like triathlon and some other sports. But in running, it's always been pretty raw of who's, you know, who's the best trained, who's the fittest on the day, who executes the best race, that's the person who's going to win. And now if it's like, oh, well, that person has shoes that are two or three minutes faster, or that person has a prototype shoe that is not accessible to other people, that's really, really a problem in this sport. So it's something absolutely needed to be done. And I think I think we're only a few months away from a lot of these shoe companies putting out shoes that are at least competitive, maybe not as good as or better than, but at least give some some choice for both sponsored athlete and people, you know, people, the, the market in general to, to buy. It is a fascinating debate. And coming from the triathlon side of things, it's like as a triathlete, you're just so inclined to be able to buy speed and to buy things. And like a lot of the fastest triathlon items are quote, maybe readily available, but also made in like really small batches sometimes from like really small companies that like, you know, sell like a handful of these things or like people are making their own types of bars and things like in their basements and riding them, you know, and things like that are happening a lot. So it's, it's been interesting, I guess, from, you know, I guess more of an outside perspective to be watching the shoe debate. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know I agree with you though, when you described putting on the vapor flies and just feeling what it, the difference it is, it's certainly a difference. So there's a a lot that can be said about that, but we don't want to leave our listeners kind of with the cliffhanger of what's happening for this Olympics. So at this point, I think that we're keeping our fingers crossed, right? So you being Olympic bound is still not a hundred percent confirmed because you can't be officially named to the Olympic team until after the window for qualifying, which closes, which is in May, which seems like crazy late to me too. So that qualifying time, like other people, I guess, could in theory meet is 2.29.30. And so since you're two minutes ahead of the rest of the field, so, you know, again, our fingers are crossed and things look good, right? But do you, you know, are you training as if Tokyo is on the docket? Um, you'll readjust if something's unexpected. Like, do you know of other women who are kind of still gunning for a spot before before May? Yeah, well, absolutely. A couple things. One is Canada doesn't have an Olympic trial, so the United States does. So we had an Olympic trial, which was the Toronto Scotiabank Waterfront Marathon in October that I was actually originally planning to run, but then I had like a last minute injury. So the winner of that in standard, was guaranteed their spot to Tokyo for the Canadian team. And that leaves two more spots, so up to three total, um, for Canada to fulfill their whole quota for the Olympic team. We're in a position in Canada this round of Olympics where we've never been before, where we had seven or eight women coming into this Olympic year who had a chance of making the team. Um, We have depth that we haven't seen before, which is super exciting because we sent two women in Rio, in 2016, which is the first time we'd sent two women for the marathon. And previous to that, we had no one or one person. So now we're actually in a position where we are going to fill, we are going to send three women to the Olympics. There's already four people who have qualified. Now, what, because we're not a straight up trial the way you are in the US, where it's first three across the line are guaranteed, you know, have their spot. In the end of that qualifying period on June 4th, Athletics Canada has to actually decide who are they filling those three spots. One of them's already taken. That's Dana Podorsky, who won Toronto, because that's how they wrote their selection criteria, and that's why I wanted to run Toronto as well. And then there's two more spots, and there's right now three of us who have times that qualify for it. So 
how they, you know, and, and there's still a few more people gunning for it. So how they actually decide, because again, there's a bit of nuance, like are all courses equal? We had a woman who finished ninth at world championships in Doha in the heat. So she didn't have a fast time, but she performed really well under those conditions. Um, it's really interesting and really been intriguing in Canada to follow this kind of story. Like who's going to get the spots and super, super cool to have a competitive field for the first time where we've we're going to be sending three really, really good runners. I'm hopeful and optimistic that I'll be on the team. And if two people end up running faster than me in the next two months, then that's pretty amazing for a country. Um, but at this point, we are kind of the plan A is to proceed as if I'm going to be running in Tokyo and plan my spring training and racing season as that, with that as focus. Like I'm not going to do another marathon. I'm not going to chase the standard at this time. So I looked at the Olympic marathon course, which is actually happening about five hours north of Tokyo in Sapporo, Japan. And it reminds me a lot of an Ironman run course. It has three loops, lots of turns, and the temperature, while it won't be as hot as Tokyo, could still be pretty warm. So assuming you got to race, do you think your Ironman experience might give you an edge on your competitors? Well, first of all, thank you for telling me about the course because I haven't looked at it yet. <laughs> so that's very interesting to know. And I really like this, the fact that it's a three-loop course because I actually really like that about Ironman when we have two or three-loop courses in Arizona or Texas. Like To me, it just kind of breaks it down. So some people like single-loop courses, but I'm all... For, I'm all for loops and plus it's really fun to check in with your with your friends and family on course when they can watch you more easily and the heat yeah I know the heat is absolutely a factor and I apparently race well in the heat but I don't really find it that pleasant like it's still really miserable but I guess I don't blow up completely and I'm really lucky in Canada that we have really really great sports science and like the lead of our um, Canadian Sport Institute his name is Trent Stellingworth and he's been helping me with my, he's kind of on my advisory team for this whole marathon project. And he's sort of an expert in heat adaptation has helped a lot. He helps the Canadian team in Doha and Lindsay Tessie finished ninth and he's helped the race walkers. So we actually have really good strategies to help deal with acclimating for the heat and dealing with the heat on the day that I don't know all the, the de top details yet. I'm sure I'll be enlightened. So I think we'll go into the games really well prepared for the heat and humidity on the day and, and able to to compete to our best ability. Melindy, when we're reading about your career, it's been given a description of one being about resilience and reinvention. So I'm curious about if you would agree with that. <laughs> well, I, you know what? It's funny because I've had a lot of downs in my career and thankfully, thankfully we're on a, on a, on an upswing right now, but I don't think you make it 25 years without having some pretty gutting moments over the years with, you know, injuries or not making your goals and dreams. But I think, yeah, at the core of it is I really love to train. I really love to compete. I love the process of getting towards a goal. And then also like the reinvention piece to me, it's fresh and exciting to change things up and to think of new challenges and to kind of let things like go with the flow with things. So I didn't, like I said earlier, plan to go from one professional career in track to triathlon to marathon. It was never the master plan. It's just like, oh, this kind of, this excites me. This, uh, this sets a spark. This, this is something that would be cool to do. And I think that, that, you know, sometimes we put so much emphasis on goal setting and how are you going to get there and planning the perfect route and we lose sight of the trees and like what the whole purpose of life is and just kind of going with the flow and having fun with it and, and trying new things along the way. So yeah, I'd say that for now, that's a, probably a, 
we'll, we'll, we'll stick with that summary for now. And we, we have a little bit of marathon fever going on here in the U.S. with the Olympic marathon trials. They're just around the corner, and since we are recording this before the trials, I'm running in the trials. Um, it's a little bit late for me to, like, probably be doing any, like, of your specific workout. Well, I wouldn't be – I would be doing your workouts at, like, a slightly slower pace. But um, but I'm still pretty darn proud of my own. Do you have any favorite marathon worker workout that could be, like, scaled for some of our listeners or our podcast hosts who don't quite run a 224 yet? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, it's all it's all relative, right? We'll just take us back to the pool, and you'll be doing, like, three laps for every one of mine. But, yeah, so – this is kind of the secret to not maybe not the secret, but this is the, the, the thing that a lot of people miss in their marathon training. You need to do a significant portion of your long run at your goal marathon pace. So a lot of people think they can get away with doing a long, slow, easy run. They, Oh, I did my 25 mile run as part of your prep for a marathon. Well, if that 25 mile run is, uh, you know, at a minute per mile slower than what you're planning to race at, you're not going to be able to make it 26.2 miles out of you know, so much faster. So in the past, there was this idea of like, you could do, you know, traditional two workouts a week in a long run and that's marathon training. Now I think what we're seeing is better, better training. And, and you may be doing this and, and many listeners maybe, but I still see a lot of people who, who miss out on, you need to do like 30 kilometers worth of marathon pace intervals leading up to your marathon. So I would do something like five by five kilometers with a kilometer cruise, but still pretty quick in between at race pace with a warm up and cool down. It's 35, 36, 37, 38 kilometers worth of work in the day. Uh, seven, eight, six, five, four, three, two, one kilometers with 60 seconds rest. That's 28 kilometers worth of intervals with a warm up and a cool down. You're close to 40 K. So really getting your body ready to run a really long ways at a, at the pace that you want it to, and not just, uh, Oh, I did the mileage. Like there's a focus on, oh, I did the miles, but the miles mean nothing. If you haven't touched on the pace that you actually want to run the miles at. And our final question is of course, where can our listeners follow you, um, in your journey, which will hopefully be to Tokyo this summer. Well, uh, I'm, I'm everywhere. Everyone else is, I think like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Although that's being said, I, I coach uh, high school kids and they're on other things like Snapchat and stuff. I'm not on stuff. So I'm on the things that like, you know, people in their thirties and forties are on and <laughs> those platforms and or just my, my name, which thankfully is very, um, for me, it's super uncommon. So I don't have to worry about there being multiple Melindy Elmores out there. Cause I don't know any other Melindies. Uh, I, I enjoy the unique name as well. Thank you so much, Melindy. We will be cheering for you and crossing our fingers for that great news coming in May. But thanks again for sharing some of your stories. Thank you very much for having me. And best of luck for you out there in, in what is it, a week? Yeah. Thank Two you. Weeks. I need it. I need all the, all the good vibes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be an experience, but, um, a little uh, less pressure on me than on yours, but I'm enjoying it. I think it will be, it's going to be a really good time. That's so awesome. Good luck. This is Haley and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits, but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. 
I've done a few workouts with the form swim goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. Well, Alyssa, I truly enjoyed one more week of enjoying this marathon hype before we move into more of our more traditional Ironman type conversations, which are going to kick off very soon. This weekend, we can follow you at Ironman New Zealand. How should we be watching you? So it'll be on Facebook watch or so like through that Facebook, like live streaming with the races, which is awesome. So this race will be live streamed through, um, Ironman on Facebook watch, and it will be on us time Friday, 1 45 PM ish Eastern 11 45 AM Bozeman time. And that's about when we're starting. We're starting like, it's actually a little bit of a late start, like almost 8 AM for us here on Saturday because the 70.3 goes off beforehand. So it'll be nice, hopefully like a little relaxing morning as we kind of wait for things to kick off, but everyone can spend their Fridays watching, uh, us race down under, which is pretty exciting. TGIF. Now I, I have my Friday night plans. That's going to be so much fun. Can't wait to cheer you on. Best of luck. Enjoy these last couple days of prep in Topaw. And um, I can't wait to hear about it next week. Thanks, Haley. Congratulations again on the U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials. I, I think I'll be remembering you running for a while, so I can't even imagine how you feel. But um, we'll catch up again next week. Bye, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.